everyone. Welcome back to On the Nose, the Jewish Current Staff Podcast. I'm your host for this episode, David Cleon, the newsletter editor for Jewish Currents. And for this episode, I have a very special guest, Mike Duncan. Mike is the host of two widely acclaimed history podcasts, The History of Rome and Revolutions. We're going to talk mostly about the Revolutions podcast today, which I'll briefly gloss. It's basically a sequential, very detailed yet accessible recounting of 10 historical revolutions in chronological order spanning many countries and and continents, going from the English Civil War of the 17th century up to uh, the Russian Revolution, really the two Russian revolutions of 1905 and 1917. But really, Mike's corpus of podcasting work alone could consume years of your life if you're into history, and it certainly has consumed years of my life. He's also the author of two books, A Storm Before the Storm, which is derived from the History of Rome podcast, and Hero of Two Worlds, which is a biography of the Marquis de Lafayette, heavily informed by the Revolutions podcast. And today we're going to be talking about revolutions, not just as a podcast, but as a historical phenomenon and one that is perhaps relevant to the present day United States and its current political situation. So with that out of the way, Mike, why don't you introduce yourself to the extent I haven't already? And let's get to it. Well, hi, uh, thanks for having me. I'm Mike Duncan, and the history of Roman revolutions has also consumed years of my life. I'm coming up on my 15th anniversary of of the first episode of the history of Rome. Could you just tell us a little about where you're coming from, how you got into history, and what the genesis of these two podcasts was? Yeah, sure. You know, I came out of university, you know, I graduated back in 2002, And I studied in school, I studied political science and philosophy. And then the political science stuff was, it was a lot about political theory. That was just kind of like what I was into and what I was studying at the time. But to do all of that, you know, to study political philosophy and political theory requires a lot of historical background reading, right? You can't understand what Machiavelli is talking about unless you understand the politics of his times in Italy. You can't understand, you know, Polybius unless you understand the history of the Roman Empire. You can't really understand Plato unless you understand Greek history. And so I was doing like a ton of background reading to understand the philosophy that was being produced by these guys. And then when I got out of school, the thing that I kept going with and kept reading was the history more than the philosophy. I got a little like sort of burned out on these like abstractions and these these sort of abstruse theories and was much more interested in the concrete events that like were, were producing all of this stuff. So I was reading all of this Roman history, got really into Livia, I got really into Polybius, I got really into Plutarch, and then kind of went looking for a podcast that I thought would help augment my own sort of investigations and my own research into these guys and discover that one didn't really exist at that moment. And so I was staring at the early history of Rome by Livy, looking at how easy it was to start a podcast and just one day put out an episode with the intention of chronologically narrating the entire history of the Roman Empire, because that is just kind of the the big bite that my creative brain likes to take from time to time and just be like, let's just do the whole thing. And then that's just how the ball got rolling. And how many episodes did that end up producing just of Rome? So I I thought it was going to be about 70 and then it would take me about 18 months and it wound up being five years and 189 episodes 
and covered everything from, you know, the, the legendary sort of mythical arrival of Aeneas in Italy, all the way through the expulsion of Romulus Augustulus in 476 and the fall of the Western Empire. Way to spoil the finale for me. I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> <laughs> the, the empire never ended, right? It just kind of keeps going and going and going. But you do have to you do have to eventually bail on these things. Well, and then so how did how did revolutions happen? <laughs> I, was, I was actually just writing about this. Originally, sort of there was a couple of conceptions. You know, I knew I, I wanted to do another podcast. I knew I wanted to move into the modern era. And then also, very ironically, I did not want to take on a project that was as massive as the history of Rome. And so the original conception of revolutions, it was, you know, each one of these revolutions will be 12 to 15 episodes, and then I'll take some time off, and then I'll do a next one, cap out at about 15, 16 episodes, and, you know, we'll be out of here in a couple of years. And I got five or six episodes into the very first season on the English Revolution or, the, you know, the War of the Three Kingdoms or the British Revolution, whatever you want to call it. And I was just dying. I like to sweat the details. I like to focus on not just the very, very top line stuff. I like to dig into it. And the, the English Revolution is a 25 year event that consumes, you know, the entire British Isles and could have easily been on its own 50 or 60 episodes worth of material. And so when I got into that, I was just like, you know what, I'm, I'm pulling this cap off. I'm not doing this 12 to 15 episode thing anymore. And then the French revolution went for 55 episodes and I've just been doing it ever since coming up on nine years of the revolutions podcast. Yeah. And the Russia season, I mean, in telling the story of the Russian revolution, not only are there two revolutions to cover and everything that led up to each of them, but really you end up with a incredibly thorough yet comprehensible history of Marxism till that point. I mean, you, you really take yeah. us back into the intellectual roots of Marxism, as well as several generations of revolutionary thought and activism in the Russian empire yeah. On the podcast themselves, you don't get very explicitly political in a modern sense. You play it pretty straight. It's for a wide audience. You know, you, your sympathies can be detected at times, but it's not ranty and it's very focused on the context of the time. But the discourse around the show is that if you listen to revolutions, you can kind of very subtly over a very long time hear the left pilling of Mike Duncan in real time. Correct. Because <laughs> I, I do, I absolutely come out of the liberal tradition. When I was studying political philosophy at school, you know, mostly it was like John Stuart Mill, uh, David Hume, Adam Smith, the utilitarians, like that sort of like British liberalism of the late 18th century and early 19th century you know, coming out of the Cold War, you know, I think something in the back of my mind was just like, oh, and these are the guys who were right and whose philosophy was ultimately successful in this 20th century showdown between Marxist socialism and liberal capitalism and democracy. But, you know, when you're doing Rome, there's a kind of like, I, I say this with love and I see it as, as something I relate to, but an almost kind of like adolescent fanboy kind of thing where you're constantly like ranking how good were the emperors, you know, yeah. like almost as if they're like baseball players. Well, I literally compared Aurelian to a baseball player. Yeah. So what you're ranking them on is effectively like, you know, how good were they at ruling a massive empire? Yeah. Not that you cover up their various crimes and persecutions, but I feel like the framing is like, the Roman Empire, that was pretty cool, right? Yeah. The Rome stuff, the conception of that show, which, you know, I was in my you know mid-20s when I started that, was I want to take all of these ancient historians and 
combine and synthesize everything that they were writing about that most people don't read because it's such a dry history. And so, yeah, when you, when you then see the perspective that that produces over that 189 episodes, it's it's very much from the Romans' perspective. And I think one of the, the clearest markers of just the fact that, yes, over the years, I have read more books, I have lived more of my life, I've experienced and seen more things and thought more deeply about different things that my, very specifically my treatment of the Gracchi brothers. And to gloss very briefly that, I mean, the Gracchi brothers are basically were populist redistributionists in the context of the Roman Republic. Correct. Yes. You could understand them as proto-leftists, although that's a gross simplification. Yeah. it's And it's like the whole thing is wrapped. I mean, the Gracchi were like inner circle Roman nobility. They were not actually like, you know, populist leaders rising up from the streets. They were, you know, they were like the Roosevelt's practically in terms of, of what right. they were trying to do. They were, they were traitors to their class more than they were populist demagogues. Right. But that kind of seems like something that you would see in more positive terms now than you than you did when you were first recording. Yeah. If you listen to the episodes that I made about the Gracchi brothers 12 years ago now versus then I wrote a book after I was long into revolutions and after many years had passed, I then went back and, and wrote a book about that period. And lots of people have noted how different my take is on the Gracchi brothers and where my sympathies lie and what I think the problems were. And you I, you can see too, just like some languagey stuff, the way I talk about the crowds as, you know, the mob and having this sort of like this standoffish relationship to this entity called the mob that is sort of threatening to the considered enlightened rational leaders of, of the government. That's very much changed over the years. And I don't think I've used the word mob in any context for about five or six years now. Going through the French Revolution and going through 1848 uh, in particular really sort of disabused me of a lot of whatever you would call the instinctive liberal aversion to people out in the streets marching and yeah. and, and why they're doing it and what they're doing it and, and whether or not what they're doing is right and just or whether or not it's just disruptive and annoying. You know, in the American Revolution season, I would say that slavery is acknowledged and condemned Yep. But it's not centered. It's not the core fact of who people like Washington and Jefferson and Madison were. It's more like a, a, a shameful thing that must be acknowledged. But two seasons later, when you're doing Haiti, which, which is centrally concerned with slavery in the same time period and, and not that far away, I think a concept of class and power starts to really take over the show and, and never leaves. You can feel a more leftist Marxist critique kind of coming in, in the way you formulate things as, as you realize that slavery and, and class relations and serfdom and things like that are, are inseparable from the political structures of a given country as they're shifting. Yeah, I, I think that's very fair. And, you know, if the person I am today was to make a series about the American Revolution, of all the things that I've written, it would be the thing that would be most different. I, I think that my take on the American Revolution now, as opposed to when I first wrote it eight or nine years ago, would be significantly different in focus and in tenor and in what I'm talking about and why I'm talking about it. And Haiti is a lot of what did that to me. I think that spending that much time with the Haitian Revolution and truly grappling with the realities of the Atlantic world and Atlantic colonialism and Atlantic slavery in a way that clearly, you know, to my own sort of embarrassment, chagrin and shame, like when I was reading all of that stuff, like and light bulbs are going off. I'm like, oh, my God, there are those moments when you when you realize things that you should have already known. And and in reviewing how this develops, I, I also want to make clear I'm not in any way suggesting that the whole series is not worth listening to. It very much is. 
is. No, but you should start. You should, as, he, as I recommend to people too, you can start with episode 3.1 on the French Revolution. And if you're very interested in going back, you can listen to the British Revolution and the American Revolution without being any worse for the wear. I think it's fair to say at this point, as you get to the final episodes of the Russia season, by this point, you've become something of an expert on revolutions as a historical phenomenon. And the thing I really wanted to talk to you about today is, are we living in a revolutionary moment right now, in your considered expert opinion, we being Americans in the early 2020s? Well, I mean, that is a a very difficult question to answer. The thing that makes it difficult is that I talk about the moments in history where revolutions do breakout, right? Where there is something that explodes in 1789 or 1830 or 1871 or Mexico in 1910, 1911. But just because those moments had revolutionary sparks that then burned into a full-blown revolution, there were other times where it seemed like all the conditions were there and ripe for a revolution, but for whatever reason, like something doesn't happen or occasionally I, you know, run into times where there's an insurrection that's brewing and it torrentially rains for three days straight. And so everybody like goes back and there was like, you know, there was about to be a revolution in 1836, but it was almost literally washed away by rain. So when I look at the United States today and the world today, having done the storm before the storm, which is about the breakdown of the Roman Republic and having done all of these revolutions episodes, do I see the contours, the causes of a potential revolutionary event? Yeah, they're everywhere, right? The, the warning signs are flashing red across the board. And if some kind of revolutionary event does occur right now, telling the story of how we got to that moment, whether it occurs later this year or in 2023 or 2024 or something, it's going to be very easy for historians to go back and write the story of how the United States came to this acute crisis, whether it's a second American civil war or a second American revolution or whatever you want to call it, the contours economically, socially, politically, it's just all right there. It's just going to take one little thing to make it go off. Everybody will be so surprised, right? Just the way they were so surprised by January 6th, but it's not surprising at all. And it won't be surprising if and when it happens. I almost feel stupid posing the question, but how would you summarize briefly what exactly it is you're referring to? What are these leading warning signs that we could be heading toward cataclysm? Yeah, well, I, th- I think, you know, coming out of the Cold War, I think that the, the dynamics of American politics fundamentally changed and created a far more hyperpartisan warfare, you know, between the Democrats and the Republicans, which is caused by many, many things, not the least of which being that the Democratic Party used to have this stable base of like incredibly racist Southern Democrats that kept the two parties in the 20th century, like in this sort of weird hybrid dynamic that as people like the last generation of guys like Zell Miller go away and people like Trent Law and Newt Gingrich are starting to rise, they're now in the Republican Party. You have this complete divorcing of interest between the two parties. And an attitude, I think, coming out of especially the Republican Party of of complete intransigence to anything that any Democrat is going to try to do. This is going back to like the dead on arrival of Clinton's health care bill way back in the early 90s. I think you can trace a lot of our political conflicts to that. You have, you know, the biggest economic event that people still I don't think are grappling with how important it was in the 2008 financial crisis 
that completely changed the economic dynamics for anybody under the age of 40. There is a real generational divide between the economic realities of people under the age of 40, 45, and those over the age of 40 or 45 created by that economic crisis that as much as we've quote unquote recovered from it, the, the, you know, the job market and the, and the economic security and the, and the social security, not just checks for retirees, but true social security has been eviscerated over the last 10, 15 years with the massive austerity programs that were unleashed as a result of all of that. So, I mean, that's just two things. And you've got, you know, MAGA is obviously out there as a brewing force. You have Democratic leadership unable to seem to want to fight any of the battles that they would need to fight to hold these forces back. I could go on and on and on. All of that sounds right to me. And I guess to it, I would add the hyperpartisan dynamic that you described is also almost exacerbated by formal constitutional framework that basically doesn't allow the country to be governed in any kind of forward-looking way right. uh, or in any way that is at all reflective of, of where majority opinion appears to be or in a way that actually seems like as the country is demographically changing, the constitutional system we have is basically not designed to reflect that and is producing increasingly undemocratic, small-d democratic governance. And Speaking from the point of view of someone who is left wing and under 40, though not by much, I think across many different issues, across issues of of race and gender and sexual orientation, but also in terms of economics and and social stability and, and, and the social safety net and obviously climate, our whole generation feels like we're in the middle of a bunch of acute crises that the political system is totally unwilling to address or in many cases even acknowledge and feels pretty powerless, all of which I think leads a lot of people in our position and and maybe the kind of person who reads Jewish Currents to think, well, you know, why aren't we in the streets? And periodically we are. You know, there were there were massive street protests in response to Donald Trump's election. There were massive street protests, obviously, in 2020 around the, the murder of George Floyd. And yet the results never seem to materialize. I mean, we're recording this the day after San Francisco voters, who on paper are some of the most liberal voters in the country, have just voted overwhelmingly to recall Chesa Bowden, their kind of reformist DA who was supposed to end the racist war on crime. I mean, New York has a literal cop mayor who's put many more cops on the streets. And it feels like, you know, the upshot of it is any kind of insurgent revolutionary energy that some of us felt was brewing two years ago feels like it's amounting to more reaction, more policing, more carceralism. So what, I mean, you said literally rain can cut off a revolution before it starts, but what is missing, do you think, that prevents this angry young generation from just giving up on the constitutional order as they know it and physically forcing something different? Why why isn't that happening? There are several reasons why I think that that isn't happening. One is that in my experience studying all of these revolutions, there needs to be some kind of what I would call a revolutionary column from the top down that is moving against whatever the existing system is. And that you can have popular protests, and popular protests are a necessary component of any social revolution, but unless you have people like inside the inner circles of power, what in our case would be like the politicians in the Senate, maybe we're talking about leading 
tech billionaires who are going to be able to fund things surreptitiously the way that, say, the Duke d'Orléans was surreptitiously funding most of the revolutionary journalists that were driving events in 1789, like Camille Desmoulins. Absent that kind of force inside the political structure, it's going to be difficult for that popular movement to translate into actual grabbing of political power. You do need somebody who's there ready to take it over. And like you take the Russian Revolution as a perfect example. You know, the February Revolution did not happen just because the workers in Petrograd rose up and were marching through the streets. It also happened because members of Tsar Nicholas's own family, those politicians who were absolutely in the cabinet, who were serving as sort of the, like the senior councils that were powerless at the time, were all of a mind that Nicholas probably needs to be removed at this point. And so pushing Nicholas out of the way, if the ruling class elite in Russia or in France had in fact been united, I don't think that those revolutions actually come off. It's never, I don't think, ever going to be enough to simply have people marching through the streets. You, you need that upper rung to be willing to move in and pop the people that are in power and push them out of the way. And also you need the funding for all of these things, right? Like Lenin was taking money, not famously Lenin was taking money from the Germans. We know that in 1917, but even before that, like he's going and having meetings when he's in exile with like British capitalists who are sympathetic to the liberal constitutionalist wing of the Russian revolutionary uh, sector, like the cadets, people like, you know, people like Pavel Milyakov or then, you know, Kerensky's a little bit to his left that are sympathetic to that constitutionalist movement in Russia and see somebody like Lenin and the Bolsheviks as a group who could advance that interest, which is popping the czar and removing him from power. So the Bolsheviks are taking money from like capitalist entities in the West as a matter of course. So if you don't have those sorts of things going on inside of your hypothetical revolutionary coalition, you have a bunch of people massing in the streets, but nothing really in terms of realpolitik is going to happen. And right now you can tell how much the liberal elites in the Democratic Party or in just sort of the liberal business sectors are just terrified of any kind of mass grassroots political movement. They just want everybody to go home. That's what they want to have happen. So they can just get back to the business of going through the motions of being leaders of a country without actually having to be leaders of that country. I mean, I think that's right. I think you sometimes hear this rhetoric from across the spectrum, how the two parties are the same and they're equally bad and they're, they're really all have the same agenda, which I often find it's not only incorrect because there is a meaningful difference between a country that has abortion rights and a country that doesn't. I mean, there are some actual meaningful policy differences between the parties that, that affect millions of lives and are not superficial. But it's also, I think, misleading because it almost gets at something that is relevant. I think it is true that the two parties basically serve the interests of aging property people. But it's a big, diverse country with many different regions and many different industries, and aging property people are not monolithic. And they may have very different visions about what kind of country they want to live in. And I think that Democrats accurately represent how a certain swath of the country over the age of 50 or whatever sees its interests. These tend to be, I think, boomer homeowners who have something to lose from a disruption of the social order, but who also don't like the direction for various good reasons that uh, Republicans would want to take the country in. But I think that that younger generation we've talked about 
you know, it has a few obvious champions in, in the squad or whatever. And I think Bernie Sanders was a beacon for a lot of us. And his legacy is not, I mean, he's still in the Senate and there are younger members of Congress who are very consciously following his path. Still, the amount of power that, for lack of a better word, the millennial generation has relative to its numbers and relative to its sense of crisis is striking. And eventually, there is generational turnover. My parents are boomers. I love them. I hope they live forever. But I do need them to pass the baton. I mean, there was uh, the cover story of, of New York Magazine this week is about Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, who is probably too old to be called a boomer. The piece makes very clear, as several recent pieces have, she is losing cognitive function. Uh, I think we can say that. And that her inner circle of aides are well aware of this and have decided that that's okay because it means they can still influence events. And, you know, I don't think she's the only very prominent leading member of either party who's in that position right now. And I think that that serves as a kind of a, unsettling metaphor for the for the health of the entire system for for a lot of us. Yeah. And I mean, I, th- I, I actually I just had a, a thread about this on Twitter, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago. The fact is that one of one of the unspoken things going on in our political system is that medicine has gotten so good that these kinds of people who are just old and usually uh, with the deterioration of age naturally have to retire are able to just stay healthy, vigorous Pelosi. And, you know, Bernie Sanders is not some like up and coming young buck on the make, you know, Uh, Joe Biden clearly isn't on the other side. Donald Trump clearly isn't. And with the fact that the American political system prizes literal seniority in terms of years served, like the the reason why you keep Dianne Feinstein in that seat for as long as possible is because her seniority on those committees means that the Democratic Party of California is able to influence things in a major way through that seat. If she goes away and they elect a new Democratic senator, that's the now the most junior senator in the institution. And that is a bad place to be inside the Senate. you got to work for that. And of course, that points to another fundamental flaw with the system, which is California is about one eighth of the US population and probably a comparable or greater share of the US economy. And yet the Senate has it fixed at 2% representation in our senior legislative body. I'm very on board with abolishing the Senate and have been for, for 20, 25 years. But suffice to say, it means we need to keep Feinstein in, in this position so that California can even get its fair share, or it still doesn't get its fair share, but something closer to its fair share of federal monies, as opposed to to, to being truly marginalized. Well, th- this generation that is continuing to sort of uh, control the Democratic Party, control the Senate, control the House of Representatives, and even inside the presidency in form of Joe Biden, their view of the world, their view of the American political system, the Constitution, the Republican Party, is, is all formed in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and 70s. This is all stuff that was now 50, 60, 70 years ago. And younger generations, like I'm, uh, I, I'm 42 right now. And so I came of age like in the late 80s I and then under Clinton and, you know, the George W. Bush era, I have a very different understanding of how politics is played, of what the stakes are, of what people are willing to do and not willing to do. And the idea that there is any sort of collegiality between the two parties to me is just like a nonsense. 
and this sort of eternal search from senior leaders in the Democratic Party for like the reasonable Republican and the responsible Republican who's going to join together with them in government and all these things that you get sort of from from the center right, which is always saying to the Democrats, well, you need, you know, if you just reached out a hand to the Republican Party, we could join together in a bipartisan way to, to X, Y, and Z the country. This is hearkening back to a, a sort of a mythological age of American unity as the defenders of freedom and democracy in the world. And this is still where they see the country. They still see the Constitution and the two-party system and American politics generally as representative of liberty, freedom, and democracy. And that anything that would tend to challenge the constitutional order, which I will say they have an abhorrence to what Donald Trump and the MAGA coalition is trying to do in terms of their threats to the constitutional order. But if you stake yourself to the idea that the constitution is good and we need to follow the constitution in all its forms and procedures, if that becomes the position that you defend above all others, then you are automatically negating anything outside of the constitutional bounds as a way to fight for your political ideals your political principles, the policies that you would like to see enacted, and you wind up defending the procedure and the system rather than the ideals and the policies, and you are vulnerable to threats like court packing, where if you have the Supreme Court saying, oh, well, yeah, Roe v. Wade, that's not a thing anymore, then somebody who is an absolutist defender of constitutional procedure is just going to say, well, the Supreme Court said it. So I guess we just have to win a bunch more elections over the next 25 years, get some new justices on there and try to undo this instead of doing what people would like to do, which is like direct action and legislation to push back against all of that right now today, not wait 25 years. Right. Because as 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 it stands, we have a democratic elected leadership. And I, I don't want to put it all on them because I think they're actually reflective of how a lot of democratic voters actually feel, especially of the older generation, that basically their first instinct is always to pour cold water on any kind of radical solution, even procedurally radical solution to any of these crises, even as they protest what the Republicans are doing. Correct me if I'm misremembering this, but I think there's a point you make at the end of the Mexican Revolution season, the the ninth season of revolutions, as you're talking about how it all winds down and how after these years of tumult and, and upheaval and basically civil war, the country settles into being run for the better part of a century by what's called the Institutional Revolutionary Party, which still exists, although, although it's not a one-party state anymore. And that term, Institutional Revolution, I think you say something like, what they do is they they take the figures who are sort of symbolic of this revolution, like Zapata and Pancho Villa, and they institutionalize them as, as symbols of the party and of the state, and they glorify them and name streets after them and put up statues and so on, while at the same time kind of neutering any actual revolutionary impulse going forward, because what they want now is stability and continuity. And I realized a lot of that is very true in the United States, too, not just in, in how the founding fathers are revered, but also Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, who, who implemented radical reforms in their day, but are now just, you know, more faces that we revere. Martin Luther King, who led a radical life, but is now kind of cited by everyone as a let's all get along kind of guy. Yeah. Or like when Muhammad Ali died and there was a guy that was out there like, you know, the thing that was great about Muhammad Ali is he just wanted everybody to come together. It didn't matter if he was black. He's like, are you kidding me? Have you ever <laughs> listened to even five seconds of Muhammad Ali? Right. No, the, the actual revolutionary impulse of a lot of these figures that caused people in many cases to literally murder them. I mean, I'm always fascinated that Lincoln 
has become a symbol in 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 sort of the mainstream American canon of with malice toward none, with charity toward all, bringing the country together again from its great divide, where the divide is the problem. To my mind, the lesson of the Civil War is that the way slavery was solved was not through existing constitutional mechanisms. It was solved through war, a, a, a traitorous treasonous war that killed hundreds of thousands of people that caused the planter class to be, by its own choice, really expelled from the political system for a few crucial years, during which the Constitution was then heavily modified to abolish slavery and enshrine birthright citizenship. And then through military force, the South was was overwhelmed and literally forced at gunpoint to at least in principle accept this modified constitution. Obviously, they spent the next hundred years backtracking on that. But, you know, that to me is the big takeaway. The Northern victory in the Civil War is Lincoln at all times, I think, strove to make it in line with his reading of the constitution. But fundamentally, this is a story of extra constitutional violence. And, you know, to your point, like if, if you're going to have like a like an inner circle canon of Lincoln quotes, the other one is like a house divided against itself cannot stand which is now framed as like, we need to come together because if we're divided against ourselves, we're going to fall apart. And his, if you read the very next sentence, right, it's one of these things is going to have to destroy the other. That's the way forward. It, the, the, the house that is divided itself is not put back together by mending the fences and, and going on with what he had seen at the time, which is like the Missouri compromise and the stuff in Kansas, which is trying to keep that fence mended like one of these forces is going to have to destroy the other, and that's exactly what happened. The, and the house was no longer divided because the forces of slavery were literally destroyed in fire, brimstone, you know, artillery, and bullets. Well, I think we would be remiss before we uh, wrap this up if we didn't talk about what may possibly be the more dominant and potent, I guess you could say, revolutionary or extra-constitutional force right now, which is the force coming from the right. Yeah, I think we've talked a lot about how left revolutionary energies have been squandered or suppressed by, by the liberal establishment, which still believes in the constitutional order. But at the same time, on the right, we've seen essentially an insurgent mode of governance, most dramatically captured a year and a half ago on January 6th, 2021, when the sitting U.S. president essentially mobilized a group of his supporters to to violently invade Congress to attempt a, a constitutional coup. And while they failed in the immediate event, and 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 he did leave office, and, and his duly elected Democratic successor is now the president, we've never really escaped that moment. I mean, many sitting Republicans were championing that at the time, and, and I would say more are now as they've realized it's what their base wants. And that there are no consequences for having supported it. There are no consequences for having supported it. There are open systemic efforts to ensure that should another election be challenged in that way, possibly by Donald Trump himself, this time it'll work out for him. That wing of the party controls the Supreme Court and could resolve any constitutional crisis that results in favor of someone who who manifestly did not win a fair election. First of all, is it right to refer to what is essentially a reactionary movement as 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 revolutionary, or is that a misnomer? And and second of all, how concerned should we be about the existing constitutional order with a, with its many flaws? Well, to answer the, the second question briefly, very concerned. 
to answer the first question, your definition of revolutionary, if you mean by revolutionary de facto somebody who is in favor of sort of progressive leftist social and political revolution, then it's not quote unquote revolutionary. Because if your understanding of a revolutionary means somebody who is advancing beyond whatever the current structure is towards something new, then that's going to automatically exclude radical reactionary groups who are looking to retrench or go backwards from wherever the historical moment is. My understanding of revolution is not so precise as that, and I would take a revolution to be any coalition of people who are ready, willing, and able to circumvent the existing constitutional order and use popular protest and force of arms to enact their own system of government over and above whatever was previously existing. And in that sense, to the extent that there is revolutionary energy in the United States in 2022 is entirely a right-wing phenomenon. You can see it everywhere. You can see it in their protests. I mean, they staged a coup, right? I mean, they they attempted a coup and people like want to push back on that analysis or that framing of saying that it was a coup by being like, well, did you see them? It was just a bunch of people wandering around the halls of Congress. And it's like, yes, it was a poorly planned and poorly executed coup. And therefore it is a coup attempt. But if you've have any passing familiarity with with political history, most coups are poorly planned and poorly executed and don't work out. Only a few of them are actually like done right and done well and succeed. Most of them fail miserably the way that January 6th kind of did. The problem with that being if there are no then consequences, punishments, if members of Congress who aided and embedded this, which we know they did, are not expelled from Congress, if there are not further consequences for for the senior leaders who are doing it, if, if you don't impeach Donald Trump again and forbid him from ever running for, for president, then the precedent has been set. And it's very clear to me that if this sort of thing were to happen again, that they will just go right back and do exactly the same thing again, that they will strong arm local secretaries of state. They're already any Republican state has been stripping the independent powers of their various secretaries of states and the people who sort of oversee the elections to ensure that the Republican Party as such controls who wins and loses various elections. They will use that power. They're happy to use that power. And the way that these things work with revolutions is that it's not just we reject the Constitution and are going to do everything outside of the constitutional order. They're going to use both simultaneously. So when it serves their interest to say, hey, we won this election fair and square, and now we control that governorship or that Supreme Court because that's what the laws of the land are, then they will say that. But if that goes against their interests, if they're like, hey, we don't like what this person who's in power who has the who has the authority to do that, if we don't like what that guy says, then we're just going to ignore him and do our own thing. Those two things happen simultaneously, and I think it's just the willingness to advance your interests, your policies, and your your objectives at all costs, irrespective of any sort of legality or norms or forms of, of former behavior. I think that's where revolutions come from. And also, of course, they have all the guns. They are the ones who are heavily armed. They're, you know, one of the two political, not just parties, but political movements has made being heavily armed one of the shibboleths of their movement. And so if it comes right down to it, and I was just thinking about this the other day too, which is not a a particularly great site, is that you already just talked about how the consequences of the George Floyd revolt was not defunding the police and completely reorganizing how we do criminal justice in this country, but actually ramping up money for the cops and allowing them to kind of behave with perhaps even greater impunity than they did before. And we can talk about sort of the the nut jobs with their arsenals in their basements, but do I see 
the framework for a reactionary militia army that is a coalition of like local police, county sheriff's departments, state patrols, if something were to happen in a state of national emergency would declare, would, would, the, would basically the coalition of law enforcement immediately be a force for, uh, for reaction? Absolutely. I just, I don't see, I think that they are, I think law enforcement in the United States right now is heavily politicized in favor of a reactionary stamping out of anything to the left of like Mitt Romney. Yeah, I absolutely agree. What you said earlier about there there needs to be some kind of elite buy-in or what I often see it as is um, you need a semi-elite, people who are close enough to the reins of power to see how it works and to have personal resentment of the people who have it, who are educated, who have some kind of power that the system isn't officially recognizing as such. For instance, the bourgeoisie in France or in various other countries who have a lot of wealth and have means of communication, um, but they but they're you know shut out from from the aristocratic and clerical. Uh, and monarchical order, you know, they're in a position to sort of align themselves with mass discontent in the streets or, or in the countryside or whatever. And that's how you get it. But the, the other thing that is almost banal is that you need weapons. You need something resembling an army. And I mean, the Bolsheviks were successful in large part because they were able to recruit directly from the military in a, a time of, of crisis. And it's just not clear who that is in America right now, when both the legitimate use of force in the form of the police or the military and people who, who collect guns in their, in their spare time or form militias all seem to lean at best toward the establishment and, and often toward a more extreme right. It's, it's very hard to imagine looking over the country and in spite of many left-wing you know, popular protests and, and, and left-wing writers and left-aligned politicians, it's very hard to imagine who would be leading a revolutionary movement and who the sort of armed forces behind them would be that would oppose the kind of police state nightmare that you're that you're hinting at right now. Yeah. And I'd, I mean, I just don't see it in existence anywhere. And if you were to have a few people with arms, they're just, they're going to get crushed. The the preponderance of force in the United States in the 21st century is so clearly aligned with right-wing politics. The only people, and you know, this has been sort of like this weird, I think a bulwark is that Donald Trump so successfully alienated the upper rungs of the American military establishment, right? The people who run in the Pentagon, like the Joint Chiefs, the officer corps of the United States of America's military. We often think of the military as sort of like the rank and file grunts who are out there committing like war crimes because they're just, you know, they joined up because they got to go kill Arabs or something. Those people exist. But if you get into the upper rungs of the establishment, it's a much more mixed bag politically. And I think that those people are more committed to sort of the constitution and regular order that would be in opposition to both kind of a right-wing armed uprising and a left-wing uprising, which if there's going to be a left-wing uprising, it would have to take the form of like a one of the like the people's movements at the end of the Cold War in Eastern Europe, right? It would have to be unarmed. It would have to be peaceful. It would have to take that form because if you try to get in, if you try to get in a shooting war with MAGA, like you're going to get blown out of the water. You just are. That's something everybody needs to keep in the back of their minds. But the American military... If Donald Trump had tried to call in them, right, to support his bid, they don't take they don't pick up that phone. 
right? And they weren't picking up that phone and they were working behind the scenes, in fact, to prevent him from being able to make that call in the first place in their own kind of extrajudicial, extraconstitutional kind of way in defense of the Constitution, which is not great because oftentimes the way these things go is that if a democratic system is beginning to break down into this kind of violent factionalism, then oftentimes military leaders step in and say, we are going to be the stabilizing force. And the next thing you know, we're run from the Pentagon, which is also its own gigantic problem that nobody wants to live with. Right. I mean, that, it's it's extremely depressing when you realize that maybe that's the countervailing force in the country right now, what what Trump referred to as the deep state. Yeah. Like it was the same way that like, you know, and this, this was all a lot of fantasy, but like, you know, during like the Mueller investigation period where you have liberals and, and even some leftists were kind of maybe getting a little bit sucked into this where you're pointing to the FBI as, you know, this like this wonderful, noble institution that only has the goodness of Americans at heart. And you're just like, that's not really the FBI that I've studied in my life. They didn't become staunch defenders of, of, of order and justice a week ago last Tuesday. The FBI is the FBI. I feel like we're leaving the Jewish Currents listenership in a kind of a bleak place. It's a lot to put on you to ask for any kind of optimistic note to end on. But I guess you said earlier that it's it's naive to think like the way we're going to overcome, you know, conservative control of the courts or whatever is we'll just elect a bunch of Democrats over the next 25 years. I mean, there, there, that seems both hard to do and inadequate to the challenge. But it does kind of seem like there are deeper forms of solidarity and almost left counter institutions that are going to have to be built to resist any of these various scary scenarios we're talking about, right? I mean, there's going to have to be something deeper and more durable than the current Democratic Party establishment if we're going to be able to stand up to any of it. Yeah. I, so my, my hope here is, you know, that number one, as you said, eventually the old guard leadership will die off and people who came of age at a different time period, who understand politics differently, who understand the stakes of politics and the terms of the political game have changed significantly since the end of the Cold War, which is not something that seems to have sunk in with the people who are currently running the show. If you can get some kind of changeover in leadership, then I think you will see a, a more robust Democratic Party and left liberal alliance making a comeback. You know, the nature of the federal system of the United States, which is, you know, has many, many problems up to including the fact that half the country is about to outlaw abortion if they haven't already because of the federal structure. That federal structure also works in favor of leftists and liberals in terms of like California, Washington State, Oregon State, you know, New York. You know, there are places where those kinds of fights can actually be won. And coalitions of more progressive-minded people can actually take actual political power. And then that's where your next generation of leadership is going to be coming from. The other thing is that there have been times of – we know this. There have been times of reaction. There have been times of progress in the past. The coalition that we are looking at that is rising up right now, this right-wing revolutionary coalition that coalesced around Donald Trump, very possibly – if you remove Donald Trump from that equation with his unfathomable personal charisma in terms of his narcissistic ability to sort of like bend everybody in his direction, the amount of fame that he has as an individual, like if you remove Donald Trump as a unifying figure from that movement, how much does it continue to move forward and how much then does it actually dissipate? And there is a high watermark coming 
for this crew and those democratic forces that we know exist out there, the sort of the larger majorities that support different policies, are they then going to be able to sort of have their moment and come back? And then finally, I think the hope is just that the way that things are today don't have to be the way that things are forever. And that if things get worse, which I think that they will, they can then later get better. And you get better by organizing yourselves. I think that you know one of the unspoken causes of what's going on right now is deunionization, something that, that really set in in the latter half of the 20th century, like the latter, I guess, like third or quarter of the 20th century, that if unionization starts coming back and that kind of workplace organizing, those structures are important. Like the, the left lost one of its major organizational institutional bases of power when the union started to get taken over and blown aside and dismantled, that if you can bring something like that back that exists as a, as a political force as well as just like a workplace advocacy group, then I think that there is something to that. And I think that rising unionization, especially among, you know, again, people who are under 40, could be the basis of what uh, new political coalitions look like in the next 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. Well, I think that's that's a really good place to end this. And uh, I, I couldn't agree more with, with what you just said. So Mike, thanks again for taking the time. It's always great to talk to you. I obviously encourage all of our listeners to check out Revolutions, check out History of Rome, check out Mike's books. You can check out uh, an article I wrote for The New Republic, I guess about a year ago, apropos of Mike's book on the Marquis de Lafayette, that's really just a celebration of why uh, Revolutions works as a form, uh, the, the podcast, I mean, and, and follow Mike Duncan on Twitter. He's uh, a, a deeply informed, sane and humanistic voice at a time when, when we can use uh, a lot more of those. Well, thank you for saying all that. And thank you for having me. <laughs>